Our reading is Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through to 9, 13. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there he appeared before them, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. If you keep Mark open, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray tonight that you would give us eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we pray also you would give us ears that are willing to listen to him. Amen. Almost a terrible mistake there. I've still got the last week's sermon. You don't want to hear about taking up your cross again, do you? Two weeks in a row would be a bit much. But uh, let's, uh, let's turn to Mark 8.31. Mark 8.31. Now, it was election season recently. It seems to be election season pretty regularly in this country at the moment. Uh, we're always having elections and referenda and all sorts. And it was interesting that you're basically told for whatever it is, two months, what you most need. We're told relentlessly by our political leaders. What we most need in this country is more financial responsibility. What we most need is less austerity. Everybody agrees we need a magic money tree. Uh, what we most need is tighter control on immigration. What we most need is a more compassionate attitude to those who want to come into this country. What about personally? 
What do you most need? As you sit here tonight, what do you think is your greatest need? More money? More time? Better job? Any job? To be married? To be not married? There are all sorts of things we're aware we need, all sorts of things that are consciously for us the thing that really would dramatically transform life. But very, very clearly in this passage, there are two sorts of speech. One, God the Father splits open the heavens to say, listen to Jesus. And as Jesus speaks, he says to us, what we most need is a saviour who dies for us. I guess for some of us that would be a surprise. Uh, We're not all that sure about Christian things. We're a bit new to them. It's, oh, okay. For others of us, I guess it's a bit yada, 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 yeah, 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 Jesus, saviour, Christianity. Allow God to remind you as we look at his word tonight why it is that at the heart of Christianity is a saviour and why it is that God thinks that we need reminding of it and telling of it again and again and again. Now, uh, just, to, just to give us a context, um, the climax of the first half of the book of Mark, we've seen Peter has had his eyes opened and has seen that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the long-promised saviour king who would rescue God's people and rule them and bring about all the, the promised blessings of God in the Old Testament. And Jesus has just started to blow their minds by teaching that this Messiah will be nothing like they imagine a Messiah to be. He's not come to seize political power and to rule in triumphant glory. He's come to be rejected, he's come to suffer, and he's come to die. And because it won't be glory and power for him, it won't be glory and power for his followers. And so he says in verse 34, as we saw last week, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus says to us very clearly, denying yourself... And taking up your cross is as necessary for being a follower of Jesus as Jesus dying on the cross is necessary for our salvation. So why on earth does anybody follow him at all? And the truth is, at the end of last week's passage, we saw the first glimpse of an answer. Which is that there will be a glory and a power far beyond anything an earthly rule could achieve. An eternal kingdom for all those who forego earthly kingdoms. And so at the end of uh, the passage, 8.38, he says, If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. In other words, it is cross now, but it is not cross forever. And now Jesus will start to show them what he means by saying there is glory and there is power as he gives them a little glimpse. So just three things really from this passage. Look at Jesus' glory, listen to Jesus' voice and learn from John's suffering. So 9 verse 2. After six days... Now, six days is a precise time marker. You don't get that very often in the Gospels at all, and not in Mark. It's his way of saying, look, what happens next is really tightly tied. This is the fulfillment of what he's just said about um, seeing the kingdom come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain 
where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. It sounds like a weird washing powder commercial, which uh, we'll get into why on earth it has this strange description. But the appearance of two great figures from the Old Testament ought to sort of be an alarm bell to us. Okay, uh, oh, there's Old Testament things going on. And Mark uses lots of uh, details that that show us that we should have the Old Testament open in front of us as we read this passage. So two great figures. Firstly, Moses. He was the man that God used to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's the first leader of Israel when they're no longer a family, an extended family. They're now a nation. And it was through him that God gave the covenant, uh, the sort of binding relationship, the law that came with the temple and the sacrifices uh, and the priests and the Ten Commandments, all those things. All of those things came through Moses. And Elijah was the the first of the great prophets in Israel. He was the one who called the people of God when they've wandered away from God and he calls them back to God and his word, to his law. And both of these guys, Moses and Elijah, had powerful encounters with God on top of high mountains. So in Exodus 33, God allowed Moses to see his glory as God passed by and Moses was hidden in a cleft in the rock on Mount Sinai. And then in 1 Kings 18, God poured down fire from heaven in an awesome display of power to say, Elijah is my man, and Elijah's message that you need to turn back to God is the true message on top of Mount Carmel. But why these two figures together, of all the Old Testament figures, why is it these two who are with Jesus on top of this mountain? For that, we need to turn just a a few pages back to the last uh, book of the Old Testament and Malachi. Um, I don't have the, the same... Bible, so I could tell you what page it is on mine, but it won't be much help to you. Maybe someone can, let's get interactive. What page? Malachi 4. 962. We're practically Pentecostal tonight. People shouting out. Uh, 962. 962. Malachi 4. No more shouting out. Uh, So Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4. Now often we start this at verse 5, but verse 4, the last three verses of the whole Old Testament, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now that funny phrase, the hearts of the parents to children and children to parents, he's saying he'll return them to right ways, to the ways that the law of God commands. So do you see how Moses and Elijah come together at the end of the Old Testament? Moses gave the law of God to the people of God and Elijah is the one who turns the people back to God's law. Or in the the words of our passage tonight in Mark chapter 9 and verse 12, Elijah is the one who restores all things. He turns the people back to God who've turned away from God. And when Elijah appears to call the people back to God, that will be the harbinger. That will be the thing that brings in, as Malachi says, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So they go up on a mountain and there's Moses and there's Elijah. And so you should be expecting, if you know the Old Testament, there's Moses and there's Elijah. You should expect the Lord in dreadful majesty to appear. And there he is. 
And that is why the strange comment that sounds like it comes from a personal marketing slogan. The stress about Jesus' weirdly transformed clothing and appearance is to, is, to, is to help us to see what they were seeing on that mountain is not from this world. It's as if Jesus has peeled back his humanity so that his divine, godly brilliance shines out for them to see. Now, when Moses met with God in Exodus 33, we're told that his, his face shone with the reflected brilliance of God and people were stunned at his appearance. That's not what happens with Jesus. He doesn't reveal or reflect God's glory. He radiates it from himself. If you like, Moses got a suntan, Jesus was the sun. That's the difference. Jesus is a whole different magnitude of being. Now, we're not told here what Moses, Jesus, and Elijah said to each other. The stress in this first section is not on what can be heard, but what can be seen. And what can be seen is that Jesus shines out the dazzling, brilliant splendor of God. The disciples are looking for a Messiah, a king. Peter addresses Jesus on the mountain here even as rabbi, teacher. But in Jesus, they found far, far more than just God's king or God's prophet. They found God himself. What does this mean? Well, I guess the first thing it means is you haven't backed the wrong horse. It's the first thing the transfiguration teaches us. Because we wonder when the Bible talks about the cost, when it says to take up our cross, we wonder, is it really going to be worth it? It was a for those of you who are not sports fans, there was a very, very big match yesterday. The Lions against uh, the All Blacks, third test, the series on the, on the line. You're very, very welcome with your um, uh, English, Scottish, Welsh, Irish, or New Zealand. You're especially welcome if you're French. We love French referees. Um, and uh, the, it was a... It was a any, yeah, somebody can explain it to you after. Anyway, it was, a, it was a phenomenally awesome match. It was the culmination of a once-every-12-years encounter. And there was a huge amount of talk the week before about how brutally physical the game was going to be. Everyone was saying, for all these players, this will be a different level, and they are going to have to put their bodies on the line. They're going to have to risk career-ending injury if they want to win. They can't leave anything out. They have got to absolutely lay it on the line out there. But right before they ran onto the pitch, it's interesting what happens. It's the third test. It's one all. The trophy is set on the side of the pitch and the players run out past the trophy. A glimpse of the glory that will be theirs if only they win. And in one sense, in a, in a, it's a tiny hint of what's going on here. Uh, Jesus is, is showing them a glimpse of the glory that will be theirs, that will make all the sacrifice and hardship worth it. For the players uh, to get their hands on that trophy will make everything everything worth it in terms of sacrifice. Thankfully, we don't have to win in the Christian life. All we've got to do is trust in Jesus. But as we take up our cross and as we wonder, is it really, really going to be worth it? As it costs us, as it hurts to deny ourselves. Jesus on the mountain is transfigured before the disciples as if to say to them, don't worry, you're not being stupid in backing me. You're not making a mistake listening to my message of denial now, of cross now, of death now, because one day there will be unimaginable glory 
and you will join me forever. We need to know that when we take up our cross. Jesus is God, he will win, and he will reward you beyond anything that you give up down here. So look at the cross that you bear today to follow him in the light of the glorious crown that you will wear for all eternity. You've not backed the wrong horse. It's the first thing we learn. Okay, secondly, listen to Jesus' voice. Verses five to six. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Now, Peter has no clue what to say, but that never stops him from speaking, which which incidentally is quite an extraordinary thing to be recorded in the Gospels. There are two sort of popular views in culture about the four Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And they are one, that they were written by the disciples uh, long after Jesus died, but they embellished them to try and uh, make the Christian uh, movement more glorious so that they could take control of it and that they would be the leaders of, uh, of this great cult. Or secondly, uh, that the Gospels were written years and years later by church leaders to grow the myth of Jesus uh, so that their movement, the Christian movement, would be more powerful. But that has got to be rubbish. If the disciples wrote the Gospels to spread the movement, the very last thing they would have done is to paint themselves in such a poor light. And yet they record themselves doubting, misunderstanding, and even deserting Jesus. Mark wrote uh, basically as Peter's secretary, and his portrayal of Peter is almost universally negative. Why would you do that if you're trying to present yourselves as the glorious leaders of this new movement? Likewise, if it was written years later, can you really imagine second or third generation Christians making up accounts that effectively undermine the reputation of the very people who they say their teaching is foundational to the Christian message? How do we know about Jesus? Oh, through the apostles. And what do we know about the apostles? Largely that they were idiots. Why would you do that? Well, maybe because they were very ordinary men who spent a lot of their time misunderstanding Jesus. The only rational and historically accurate explanation is the apostles wrote these things because they happened. But again, actually, uh, Peter's not just, um, he doesn't know what he's saying in one sense, but there is an Old Testament background to what he's teaching. Uh, It's not that he can see the cloud in verse 7 coming and he's worried about Jesus' brilliant white clothes getting wet, so he said, oh, we better put up a tent. You know, it's going to rain. Shelter here is the word that's used in the wilderness when the, the Israelites are wandering out of Egypt in the wilderness. Shelter is the word used for the tent of God, the tabernacle. It was where the people met with God. So he wants to preserve on this mountain a place where they can meet with God and Moses and Elijah. He thinks there's something special about this mountaintop. He hasn't realized that the divine element is is not the place they're in. It's the person they're with. It's not a special place. Jesus is a special person. And at this point, we turn from looking to listening. As they're enveloped in a cloud, they hear God the Father speak. Look with me at verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they were looking around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. 
Now, if you climb any significant hill or mountain, especially in this country, there are clouds, but this is no ordinary cloud. In Exodus 24, as Moses ascended Mount Sinai to meet with God to receive the Ten Commandments, we read this, Exodus 24, 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And the focus of God's calling here is not to give more law, it is to speak about his son. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark 1, 11, uh, again God split open reality and he spoke from heaven and said this, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And now at the completion of Jesus' ministry as he's about to go to the cross, God speaks again. But this time he doesn't speak to Jesus, which he does in Mark 1. He speaks about Jesus to the disciples. Jesus is soon going to return to heaven and the the disciples need to accurately teach and to record all Jesus has said and done so that you and I can read about it in the Bibles and have the truth. And so God says, listen to him. Enough with your own ideas. Listen to him so that you can teach the truth. Listen to Jesus. God only speaks, God the Father only speaks directly twice in Mark's gospel. And so we should pay attention when he does. And what he says here is that we are to listen to Jesus, which may seem like one of the most blindingly obvious things you've ever heard in church. But, but, it's not. So we're, um, as a church, by conviction, we stick to everything the Bible teaches. Uh, by um, organization we're part of the uh, the church of england they're having a general synod at the moment a big meeting there's been an awful lot of talk about jesus lots of people have been talking about jesus but what has been stunning is how little anyone has been saying we need to listen to what jesus says in the bible and so they rejected a motion to affirm that jesus is the only way of salvation even though jesus is Pretty clear on that, John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's an awful lot easier to talk about Jesus and your love for Jesus and Jesus this than to listen to what the real Jesus actually says in the Bible. But it's not just the Church of England. It is also you and me. It's much, much easier for us if we call ourselves Christians to talk about Jesus than to listen to him and to do what he says. To listen to him means he sets the agenda. To listen to him means he decides what's important and what things are, take it or leave it. And you and I so quickly forget what he actually said. And I always forget quickest the things that he says that cost the most. And let me tell you, that is why the daily dogged discipline of Bible reading and prayer is the bedrock of the Christian life. Beginning each day listening to Jesus by reading what he says in the Bible. Allowing his voice to correct me, to determine my direction each day. Listen here is an active verb. God doesn't say passively uh, hear what Jesus says. He says listen, actively take the step of stopping listening to some of the other voices that fill our time. Stopping our other activity and turning and listening to Jesus. He is God in dazzling brilliance, 
and he speaks so we should listen. And in particular, we are to learn from John's suffering as we listen to Jesus. Now, I'm not one to have a pop at geographers for various reasons, but too often I've heard people speak on this passage and describe what follows as the inevitable come down from a mountaintop experience, as if uh, Mark's basic point is a geographical one. The Christian life is far more about plodding in the valleys than enjoying brilliant hilltop experiences. Now, perhaps there is something in that. There is. But that is not Mark's point really at all. You see, the disciples misunderstand Jesus in a particular way in these verses, and Jesus corrects them with a particular truth. Have a look with me at uh, verses 9 to 10. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Now, verse 9 is a clue they still haven't got it. It's why Jesus is still saying at this point, don't tell anyone about me, because frankly, you don't get it, and you'll just confuse them. They're not yet ready, and the point that they don't get is the rising from the dead, verse 10. Now, if you look at verse 11, they don't understand why the Messiah talks about dying and rising, because according to the Bible experts of the day, the teachers of the law, it's the coming of Elijah not the death of the Messiah that will bring about the kingdom of God. Verse 11, they asked him, well, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus responds, verse 12, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written, the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it's written about him. Do you remember the quotation from Malachi? The disciples are waiting for Elijah to come to call the people back to the law of Moses, to restore the people's obedience and bring in the rule of the Messiah when the Lord comes. They're looking for a teacher who will call people to to stop walking away from God and to come back to God. And when you read about John the Baptist, that's exactly what he does. He calls the people to repent. But Jesus wants them to see something far more radical is going to happen. Because something far more radical than law-keeping is what the people need. You see, as he says, the Old Testament doesn't just promise that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. It also promises that the Son of Man will suffer and die for the sins of the people. Most famously in Isaiah 53. Well, okay, what's going on in verse 13 then? I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done everything they wished. Very simply, there is a repeated pattern going on here. John the Baptist is described in Mark's gospel in in ways very similar to the prophet Elijah, where he lives, uh, what he says, how he dresses, all that sort of stuff. And then Jesus is described in terms similar to John the Baptist. Elijah, is like John the Baptist, is like Jesus. What happens to John, the prophet like Elijah, is what will happen to Jesus, the Messiah. And Elijah is crucial to the, to the ministry of Jesus. You see it in three key moments. So at the, at the baptism of Jesus in chapter one, we saw Elijah in the person of John the Baptist, a sign in the sky, the heavens torn open, and God speaks approval, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. At Jesus' transfiguration, we see Elijah. We see a sign in the sky, and God speak approval over his son, this is my son whom I love. 
And there'll be a third scene like this. At Jesus' crucifixion, Mark records the crowds think Jesus is crying out for Elijah. And there's a sign in the sky, everything turns black. But this time, Jesus cries out and there is no answering voice of approval from heaven. Just the brooding, dark, wrathful silence of God's judgment. And this time, Jesus is achieving the salvation he's speaking about here. Now, I mentioned earlier that it makes absolutely no sense for the disciples to make up accounts that are so negative about them. But why are they so happy to have accounts that are negative about them, that record their failures? The reason, very simply, is by the time they come to write, they have understood what Jesus is teaching here. They've understood that what we most need, what the people of their day and our day most need, is not a great preacher to call the people back to the law of God. Not moral reformation and the path of obedience. What we need most of all is a saviour to die for our sins. That's why the one time in the life of Jesus that God the Father speaks from heaven and says, you really, really need to listen to what Jesus is saying now is when Jesus is teaching that he's going to go to the cross and die for our sins. You see, most of us think we're doing all right and we just need a bit of help. We just need to be a bit stronger. We just need a a new start. But spiritually speaking, you and I are like those awful pictures of the, the migrant boats in the Mediterranean where the boat's flooded and the people are floundering. They can't swim and they're just floundering in the water. Those people do not need somebody to come alongside and give them lessons in how to swim, shouting out instructions for better backstroke. They need someone to dive in and rescue them, to save them, or they will die. And Jesus knows that none of us is strong enough to keep the law of God perfectly on our own. And so he has come not to call us back like Elijah, but to bring us back by dying for us. I guess there'll be a number amongst us who are not yet sure about Jesus, still looking into Christian things. Don't make the most common mistake people make about Christianity, which is to see it as a, as a way of life. That you've got uh, Jesus is this amazing person and I need to try and now live like him. In one sense, we are meant to follow him. But if you see Jesus as the, as the, the standard you've got to reach, you will just be crushed. If the leaders of the Christian movement were happy to portray themselves as foolish and weak, it was because they knew none of us can live out what Jesus has done. Our only hope is to trust in him as a saviour. And so call on him. If even tonight is the first time you do it, put your trust in Jesus and you will be saved. But for those of us who've been Christians a long time, we can still easily forget our most fundamental need is a saviour. Our most fundamental need is a saviour. And so every day we need to listen to Jesus as he speaks salvation. The problem is that looking out, you're a competent, sophisticated, 21st century set of city dwellers. You do not look like you need anybody to save you, except from the stifling heat. And Jesus says with all his dazzling divine authority, you need saving. More than a second chance, more than greater self-discipline, more than the willpower to resist a little bit longer, you need a saviour who died on a cross. 
And so every day we need to come back to Jesus as a saviour. Because every day there is worldliness and selfish independence and sexual rebellion and striving for my own gain and failure to love those who we live with or work with and ignoring the needs of those who are vulnerable. And so every day we need a saviour. And every day we live in a world which is far more broken than we're ever exposed to in this city. And every day we need to be reminded that as good as life can be here, this sinful broken world is not all that there is. That the best that there is to come is not life working well here. It's something else. So Jesus has come not to call us to a better life here and now, but as a saviour to bring us safely to an eternal paradise. Return to the cross and we find a saviour. And every day we need a saviour. Until the day you and I see Jesus transfigured again, fully, eternally and glorious. Until that day, every night, you and I will go to bed having sinned. And every morning, we will wake up needing salvation. And how very wonderful that when we do so, we find that when God took on human flesh, he took it on so that he could die to save you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus did not come primarily as a preacher to call us back, to tell us when we were wrong, to command obedience. But he came as a saviour. And so whether we're aware of our sins for the first time tonight or whether we've just been reminded of the sins we've known about for years, Our Father, we thank you that when we turn to the Lord Jesus, we find grace, we find mercy, we find forgiveness, we find a saviour for he died on the cross to pay for our sins. Help us to trust in him, to delight in him and to cling to his cross. Amen.